welcome to the world of critical care. Today's episode continues the electrolyte series and we'll be discussing potassium. The goal of this episode is to introduce potassium and really kind of set the baseline. And then on Friday, an episode will come out on hypokalemia. And the following Monday will be the final episode on potassium on hyperkalemia. Now, as I did in sodium, I had a dedicated physiology episode and actually furthermore went into the action potentials in nerve cells, muscle cells, and then cardiomyocytes. I'm not going to have a specific physiology episode on potassium because what I would have covered in that is actually covered in those episodes. And so I'd really encourage you after listening to today's episode, if you have kind of more questions about the action potential, I think those episodes I've done previously really help set a great foundation to help understand potassium. Now, potassium is actually comes from an old Dutch term in the 1400s, the potashes, and the typical chemical element symbol we use for potassium is K. And this comes from Latin, kalium. So here's the, your useless knowledge for the day. Now, potassium is a bit like sodium. It's a group one element, which simply means it's electron deficient. So it carries a plus one charge. Remember, the plus one means we, we need an electron. And so it tends to be incredibly reactive. And so because of that, it typically will form stable compounds, and in particular salts. And so we have our ionic salt compounds like potassium chloride. Of course, chloride has that minus one charge, forms that ionic bond with the positive one potassium, and we have potassium chloride, which is something very common you're going to see in, in the ICU, giving KCL is one of our most common IV potassium replacements out there, but you'll see different salt formations. Now, the reason this is critical is because we want that octet. If you've ever had general chemistry or it's kind of a, a brief passing introduction to chemistry, you know that having that stable octet helps bring stability. And in, in chemistry, things move to a state of stability. Now, potassium chloride is an ionic compound. Now, if I were to place that salt into a polar solvent, like water, it will disassociate. Now, what that means is the potassium and the chloride will actually pull apart from each other, so they're no longer sharing in that bond, that electron, to reach that stable state. Now, at first thought, you would think, well, why would this happen if that was the most stable place for them? But the water in particular with the interaction with hydrogen, actually forms this crystal lattice structure. And because of this, in the polar solvent, which is water, which is what's in our plasma, we see the potassium and chloride separating. Now, this is what we term an electrolyte solution. And in fact, an electrolyte, remember, it's a solution that contains ions that are capable of conducting electricity. And that's all we're talking about when we think about electrolytes. But they play a critical role because they allow for that conduction of electrical activity, right? That electrical movement, which allows us to have an action potential. Remember, we have that electrochemical gradient that occurs 
And then, of course, when we have depolarization, we flip the poles electrically, which allows for us to, to for me to be able to talk here today, right? That is a, a long line of action potentials. It allows us to move. It allows our hearts to beat. And these action potentials are all predicated upon the appropriate number of those electrolytes extracellularly and intracellularly, and then the movement in and out at the appropriate times. And this is what we refer to as our electrolytes in the the critical care world. Now, potassium is an interesting electrolyte in that I think it can get it kind of steals the show. If, if you go through nursing school, you blow through all the electrolytes and then boom, you spend most of your time on potassium. And I think there's some truth to it and that it's critical in our functioning of our action potential. But I also think sometimes too, we focus on it to the detriment of understanding critical, critical electrolytes like sodium or magnesium or calcium, etc. Now, potassium is, remember, our primary intracellular electrolyte. So remember, sodium is predominantly extracellular, whereas potassium is predominantly intracellular. In fact, 98% of total body potassium is intracellular. To try to put this in perspective, let's say we have a 70-kilo individual. Normally, we have about 50 to 55 milliequivalents per kilo. So that means for our 70-kilo individual, we're looking at about 3,500 milliequivalents for total body potassium. That means inside their cells, we have 3,430 milliequivalents intracellularly. That means extracellularly, we have about 70 milliequivalents. Now, what's kind of interesting is how we measure potassium. Remember, potassium is going to be one of our green top tubes. It's this part of our, you can run just a simple potassium only, potassium sodium. It's part of a basic metabolic panel. It's part of a complete metabolic panel. But remember, that lab is actually a serum lab, which means it's coming from our serum in our, in our plasma. Now, the reason this is interesting is because, remember, only 2% of total body potassium is extracellular. But in fact, in our plasma, we typically only have about 15 milliequivalents of potassium in our plasma. In other words, in our 70-kilo person who has 3,500 milliequivalents of total body potassium, we estimate their potassium levels off 0.4% of their total body K. So to think about that again, we essentially use a lab that looks at the 2% to determine total body potassium. And in fact, that 2% is really closer to just 0.4% to estimate our total body potassium. And so because of that, when we draw potassium labs, we always have to think about the clinical situation because there's a host of reasons, which we're going to go into a lot more depth in the future episodes, that can dramatically swing our potassium into a hyperkalemic or hypokalemic state, and we need to think about that. Now, 
we typically are going to look at potassium lab values as somewhere between 3.5 to 4.5 millimoles as normal. So 3.5 to 4.5 millimoles per liter is our standard uh, range. As we move under 3.5, we're hypokalemic. And as we move over 4.5, we're hyperkalemic. Four milliequivalents, or that four millimolar potassium tends to be our standard normal middle of the road. One thing I mention about that is there are some ICUs in particular that do prefer patients to be on a slightly higher side. Examples include especially your cardiac, cardiovascular ICUs where you have heart failure patients, patients with hearts which are a little more sensitive, a little more irritable. Often we want to keep people possibly more on the higher end of normal. And so again, you might have some unique potassium goals in some of those situations. So just always keep that in mind. Now, as we move under 3.5, I mentioned we're hypokalemic. Typically, 2.5 is where we're moving into severe hypokalemia. When we move over 5.5, we're typically moving into a more severe hyperkalemia. Hyperkalemia, and we're going to talk about this more, is more concerning than hypokalemia. Remember, with hypokalemia, we may have a serum lab value that is a bit low, but remember, we have 3,400 plus more milliequivalents potentially intracellularly. And with intracellular fluid shifts or intracellular ion shifts, we can, in fact, more easily bring that potassium up. Whereas when we're hyperkalemic, that's much more of a concern because remember, if our serum levels are high, we have a whole lot more potassium intracellularly, and so we need to be concerned about that. And we're going to talk about this in future episodes, but in general, the, the medical concerns are much greater when we're hyperkalemic versus hypokalemic. Now, it's interesting, too. We talked about that, the amount of potassium we have within cells. And so that's able to replenish when we're hypokalemic. But we don't have a normal curve. And, and let me try to explain this. So you have a, a patient that's four milliequivalents per liter, right? So they are just that four millimolar potassium. So they are right in the middle of a normal potassium lab value. Let's say we need to drop their lab by one. And so we are going to go from four to three, to actually have a serum lab value drop from four to three typically means our total body potassium has dropped by 200 to 400 milliequivalents. So that's our total body K. Now, let's say that we need to increase our potassium from four to five. We actually only need 100 to 200 milliequivalents of total potassium excess to increase our potassium value by one. So again, it goes to the, the, the concern that when we start 
to move into a hyperkalemic state, we become much more sensitive to total body potassium than we're in a hypokalemic state because remember, we have so much intracellular potassium. Now, how do we regulate our, our potassium? Now, this is predominantly done through our kidneys. Now, specifically, this is done in the distal nephron. We have plasma potassium, which is excreted specifically in response to aldosterone. And actually, our kidneys respond to aldosterone. It is used specifically as our potassium increases. Aldosterone is utilized to increase potassium excretion. And remember, aldosterone comes from the adrenal cortex. And we actually talked about that in a previous episode, talking through that entire system. Now, as, as our serum potassium increases, we have aldosterone that is released. But what's really important about this is we need good renal perfusion. And so because of that, when we start to have decreased renal perfusion, that's always a concern that we're not going to have appropriate potassium excretion. Now, we do have extra renal potassium loss throughout the day. In fact, we have about 5 to 10 milliequivalents a day we lose just through stool. Urine, we have about 40 to 120 milliequivalents per day. And actually just sweating, we can have 0 to 10 milliequivalents. But when you have really febrile patients who have, have potentially, we have the, the, the sweating, we have shivering, we have increased metabolic demand in those areas. We can actually increase that quite a bit more potassium losses. And so those are some of our extra renal losses. But our predominant loss is renal. Now, this is something that you'll see, especially if you're in like a medical ICU. Some of your patients that come in too who've had severe, severe vomiting, again, that's a situation where it's an extra renal loss, but it can create some very, very dramatic changes in our potassium levels. Now, when we think about hypokalemia, hyperkalemia, the way we go about these processes is we want to think of, is this a renal or extra renal loss or gain. And that's one of the predominant ways we think about things. But we also want to ask ourselves, are we having transcellular movement? We're going to go into more detail about this in the future episodes. But remember, potassium, our total body potassium may have not changed, but we've simply had shifts between the intracellular and extracellular space? And could it have been that we have a condition that has shifted the potassium? Because again, it comes to the sensitivity of the way we measure potassium. A final thought before we move into, in the next episode, on talking about hypokalemia is the importance of appropriate lab draws. Now, we have pseudo-hyperkalemia and pseudo-hypokalemia. So these are situations where we have either a falsely high or falsely low potassium. When we draw the potassium lab, if we happen to lyse the blood cells, we can lead to a situation 
where the potassium, because remember, there's so much potassium inside our cells, it actually gets released, it moves into that serum, and it artificially increases that potassium value. And remember, you get that call from lab and they say, oh, the, the lab's hemolyzed and you get frustrated. It's a reminder, though, that we don't want to treat people off inaccurate data. A few tips I found, and it's hard. I, and I remember this is I was an ICU float for, for years, and I remember being a medical ICU, and you get that patient up from the ED, and they've got that one peripheral IV, and they're a vascular patient. So you put the tourniquet on, and you pull the lab out of the IV, and the lab calls, and they say, hey, it's hemolyzed. So you go back, and you do it again, and it's the same thing again. And one of the things I think is really important with potassium labs is the gentle lab draw. Take your time on the lab draw. Even a peripheral IV, I think if you can get a nice, really slow pull, it can make a big, big difference. It's just important to make sure we are not mechanically lysing our cells because that can lead to pseudo-hyperkalemia. The other concern is pseudo-hypokalemia. Now that can actually occur when we draw a lab and it sits for several hours in too warm of an environment, which, again, that can happen. You have a patient come up, you get really busy, you draw a bunch of labs, they sit out for 30, 40, 50 minutes, and then you send it down. That has a potential to affect your electrolytes. Again, so when you draw labs, that attention to detail is critical to help guide making good clinical decisions. Because remember, as a bedside nurse in critical care, one of your most important roles is the gatekeeper of information, making sure that all the clinicians are making decisions with good data. Now, the next episode we're going to have will be hypokalemia and then follow up with hyperkalemia. I look forward to those episodes. I also am going to try to get out a midweek episode talking about some of the different ICUs, sort of the difference between them. So if you're interested in this kind of time of the year, we tend to have nursing students graduating and moving into the, the ICUs. It's a good chance just to sort of talk about some of the different ICUs and what goes on in them. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>